You may have read it in a quote. Or you may have seen it printed on the cover of a notebook if you're one of those that likes to peruse the shelves of the, of the plain-paged or line-paged notebooks, journals that they have at different places like Barnes & Noble or something. Um, that's where I first came across it. Uh, I'm talking about a line from a poem titled The Speed of Darkness. The poem was written by an American poet and political activist by the name of Muriel Rukeyser. Um, she died back in, I think it was the 70s. Uh, the line that I'm talking about comes from stanza 9 that contains the line, The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Now, if you think about that, technically we know that everything is made of atoms. Yet life as we know it, life as we know it, is all about stories. I like to think of the word history uh, really in the sense of his story. The story of God creating reaching out to redeem, promising to come back. And we're continuing to look at the stories of Jesus, the stories that he told in this sermon series. And, and I can't stress enough the importance of the parables. I shared with you uh, the line from Archibald Hunter, A.M. Hunter, who said that the, the importance of the parables can be gauged just by the fact that they make up a third of Jesus' teaching. And... Although this doesn't happen very often, I do like what I am reading and hearing from an actor uh, and now a director by the name of Drew Waters. In an interview, he said regarding his production company that he is trying to get going and some films they're making called Argentum Entertainment, that his company was going to seek to bring a new level of value to the entertainment business. Uh, I want you to listen not only to what they're wanting to do, but to what he said and what he says about Jesus. These are the words of Drew Waters. Jesus was a storyteller with amazing messages wrapped around them. What we want to do is get back to that. I'm not a preacher. I'm not the person on Sunday. I am the person that's trying to figure out life and wants to be pushed to be a better person. Stories with amazing messages wrapped around them. Stories that can push us, in Drew Waters' words, to be a better person. And so it is that we defined a parable as a common form of storytelling in that day, in Jesus' day. A story that arises out of real life experiences that are meant to evoke a response. And last Sunday, as we looked at the parable of the ten virgins, identifying that as one of the Advent parables, I shared with you how Last Sunday was, in fact, the first Sunday of Advent. 
the beginning to what is often referred to as the Christian calendar. And, and I shared that I myself had to find out and seek out what is Advent because it wasn't something that I grew up with in the churches being told what it was about and we didn't recognize it. We didn't have the Advent calendars or candles. Uh, but it's a holiday, a season, a season of preparation um, in which it anticipates the coming of Christ from three different perspectives. First, the biblical narrative of the, of the birth, the nativity in Bethlehem. What we speak of theologically as the incarnation. God coming in the flesh. But secondly, the reception of Christ into our own hearts. The new birth. And then thirdly, the final coming of Christ. The second coming, the beginning of the new age. All of this is wrapped up in Advent. And actually... Advent attempts to balance two very important elements. Remembrance and anticipation. With the first two Sundays of Advent, last Sunday and this Sunday, looking forward to Christ's second coming. And then the last two Sundays, looking back and remembering Christ's first coming. Now, I think when we realize the first of this double movement of Advent, the coming of the Lord in judgment, we realize that God demands more than we could ever imagine to accomplish. There's no way possible for us to earn salvation. We can't be good enough to be saved. That's why when people will ask me about relatives of theirs that had never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, had never submitted to baptism, and they ask me, they'll say, well, he was a good man. And I said, well, how good? Are you saying he never made any mistakes? Well, no, no, I'm not saying that. So you're admitting that he wasn't perfect. Yeah, I know he wasn't perfect. Well, where are we promised anywhere in the Bible that God saves people for just being good people? We don't. We don't see that. We can't be good enough. But as we look backward, reading, rehearsing, remembering the stories that we have regarding the birth of Jesus and the life that He lived, we also, or we should at least, realize that by becoming one of us in the Incarnation, by God taking on flesh and tabernacling with us, Christ has already accomplished all that's required. And so we look forward in anticipation. Now, what do we do during this waiting period? Well, last week in the parable of the ten virgins, the story about servants who were trying to keep their lamps lit, or at least able to burn them when the bridegroom came, they knew that the bridegroom was going to come. They realized that they had a responsibility that only they could fulfill. So they were waiting, not in a passive way, not in a resigned way, they were waiting, doing all they could to possibly be prepared when the bridegroom reappeared. Now I think if we learn anything else from that parable, 
Surely we need to learn to wait actively for God's promises to be fulfilled. But we also need to learn how to live out the freedom that comes from knowing that God's promises to return have already been fulfilled in the baby in the manger and are being fulfilled in the hope of Jesus' return in the second coming. I've spoken often, and I have to admit, I have been greatly influenced by the life and the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It might be because I am deeply interested in my grandfather's background, Frank Erler's, born in Germany, full-blooded German. I also, though, have read everything Bonhoeffer has written. Wednesday night, I saw a movie that I hadn't seen called Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace. The story of how Bonhoeffer, as a German clergyman, actively opposed Hitler and the Nazis. And his convictions actually cost him his life. He had gotten to New York City with legal paperwork to teach at Union Theological Seminary. And no sooner had he arrived and he looked at his host and he said, I can't stay, I have to go back. How would I have any authority to preach to my people after the war if I am not there with them during this time helping and supporting and preaching to them? And in fact, the Nazis hanged him on April the 9th, 1945, which was less than a month before the end of the war. They knew that the war was going to end. They knew it was, they were defeated. And yet they executed Bonhoeffer. He could have kept his peace. They gave him many opportunities to recant. And you know what? I, I hate to say it, but I think many of us would be prone to do so. We would recant before we would, would face death. I heard, you probably did too, that one of the young people killed in the high school was one of the members of the football team who was doing all he could do to take out the gunman so that the gunman couldn't kill anybody else. He gave his life so that others could live. Bonhoeffer knew that the freedom that comes from knowing God and that his promises will be fulfilled was the kind of freedom that could set him free from the captivity that comes from within ourselves. It's a freedom that enabled Bonhoeffer to proclaim release. In fact, he would rely he would write, it's a release from thinking only of ourselves, from being the center of my world, from hate by which I despise God's creation. It means to be for the other person. The person's for others. And he said, only God's truth can enable me to see the other as he really is. Interestingly, of all the seasons of the Christ, Christ, Christian year, Bonhoeffer was drawn especially to Advent. He knew 
it as a holy season of waiting and hoping. A season that he actually saw as a metaphor for the entire Christian life. In his words, he said, we simply have to wait and wait. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Before he was imprisoned, Bonhoeffer had bought a stock of Advent cards with nativity scenes on them. And one of the cards that he bought was a scene of the nativity painted by Albrecht Aldorfer called the Gerud Christi, the birth of Christ. It might be hard to see from back there because it's dark. But Joseph and Mary and the baby are huddled together under this building that seems to have been dilapidated. Many in Germany were seeing this as a prediction of what they were then facing during the war and the bombing and the bombing of their residences. Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his parents from prison. Here's what he said. Although I'm not at all clear about whether or how letters get to you, I want to write on this afternoon of Advent Sunday. Remember the Altdorfer Christmas scene in which the Holy Family is depicted with the manger amidst the ruins of a broken down house? It is really contemporary. We can and should also celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. I think of you as you now sit together with the children and all the Advent decorations as in earlier years you did with us. We must all do this even more intensely because we do not know how much longer we have. Today, we look at another of the so-called Advent parables. A parable known as the parable of the talents. As I already said on this coming Sunday of Advent, it's traditional to look forward with anticipation to the second coming of, of our Savior. What we need to remember also is Judgment Day, the day of reckoning. And I've shared with you many times in various settings that it wasn't until the 13th century that the shortest of the books in the Bible were divided into chapters and verses, a task that wasn't really completed until the 16th century. Well over a thousand years, people would read the books of the Bible without the divisions in the chapters and verses. And so that being said, I want to go back and pick up where we left off last Sunday with verse 13. Afterward, the, vir the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. John Nolan points out how the material in the parallel passage in Luke 13 verse 25 to 27 gives us maybe a little more information, a little more detail to help us understand. In Luke, Luke says, One, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Uh, could that be a reference to communion? We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you come from. In our primary text for today, Matthew recalls Jesus' use of the word, Amen, truly I say to you. And I think he's also verifying the emphasis that was marked in verse 11 of the desire of these virgins to enter into the wedding party, but they were thwarted. The late coming maidens had failed in their role Yet they still considered themselves a part of the wedding party. Now think about that. How many people do you know that still consider themselves to be Christians but they are doing nothing to demonstrate that with their lives? These virgins had failed in their role. And yet they still considered themselves a part of the wedding party and expected to be allowed to be entered in to. But you see, the bridegroom, he was of quite a different opinion. Their failure to be ready was a sign, something that they would have agreed to do, that was a sign of their failure of any connection with him as the bridegroom, as he saw it. And as the story is told by Jesus, many see this as harsh, but I think it's perhaps not unrealistic. So let's read our text for today, the, the parable of the Pamlets. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. 
I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered not, no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have sat scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who ha will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast, cast the worthless, worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The day or the hour of what? The closing of the door, the day of reckoning. The context of the parable of the talents is judgment. Judgment. Jesus doesn't begin this parable by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. No, he begins it by saying for it will be like. It referring to what he said, just talked about. Judgment day that we won't know about. And not only that, he gives clues. In the parable, verse 19, Again, like we've seen before, there was going to be a long delay. Now after a long time, he says, the master of those servants came. And there's no indication that the servants had a warning. Do not believe false prophets who say to you that you can know when the second coming of Christ is going to happen. That is heresy. We are told over and over in the Bible that Jesus' return will be like the thief in the night that we can't predict. Not only that, Jesus closes the parable with a harsh statement that the wicked and slothful servant who was described for us biblically by Jesus as worthless in case you're not aware, the word Jesus used, which is translated slothful, means lazy. That wicked, slothful, worthless, lazy servant is to be cast out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, as with many good servants, Jesus' story has three points. 
Like the Master, God entrusts all people with a portion of His resources, expecting us to be and act like good stewards. I've heard this used many times to talk about talents in the sense that Cindy has the talent to play the piano and Rich has the talent to play the bass and, and uh, you know, different people have different talents to do different things. That's not what the parable's about. Talents were money. And in fact, the amounts of money that Jesus, this master, is giving are exorbitant. The one talent would be 15 to 20 years of income. Multiply that out. And like the two good servants, if we are truly God's people and we really know the master, we'll be commended and rewarded that we have faithfully discharged the commission that we've been given. But also, Jesus' third point, like the wicked servant, those who fail to use what God has given them in terms of resources, fail to use those for His service, there will be punishment by separation from God and from all the good things. I like what Craig Blomberg has written regarding this last fact regarding those who fail. He says, This final point seems appropriate both for those who overtly are hostile to God and His revelation and for those who profess commitment to Him but show no evidence in their lives of the reality of their profession. Being a Christian is not just what we have between our ears and what we say with our mouths. Being a Christian has to do with how we live. So let me suggest something to you to consider. How might our perception of God motivate our response to His offer? This is a tough one to say. Because I love my father very much. But later in life, when I started thinking about how I related to God, the Heavenly Father, I realized that it was much in keeping with how I related to God, my earthly father. It's the only metaphor that we have for making the shift. And my earthly father was often absent. And when he got home, because of who I was, I was also afraid of him getting home because I had often heard my mom use the words, you wait till your father gets home. So much of my life, I lived with the fear of God being a mean, tyrannical person who was just going to punish me. I didn't feel that warmth. Fortunately, I did later in life. My dad made some significant changes in the last 10 years of our life were amazing. 
In this parable of the talents, a master entrusts three servants with his money while he goes off on a journey. The first two servants made a profit and are rewarded. And here exactly the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter if they brought back ten more or five more, five more or two more, depending on Luke or Matthew. They were rewarded in exactly the same way. But I think the focus of the parable is on the third servant. The third servant who has done nothing except play it safe. He buried his silver coin, what was believed to be the best security against theft in that day. And having taken this precaution, he wasn't going to have to pay out of his own pocket in case of loss or robbery He wasn't going to have to spend sleepless nights worrying about an investment that might go sour. However, when he's asked, when he's called to the task, he has nothing to show for his commission. Oh, he tries to excuse his behavior by shifting the blame to the master. The servant thinks he knows his master and alleges that the master is a hard man who reaps where he didn't sow and gathers where he didn't scatter. In other words, he justifies his zero profit by claiming that he was too paralyzed by fear to act. Um, Maybe this hits home this time of year or these last year and a half. I mean, have you ever allowed fear to paralyze you to keep you from doing what you knew to be right? I know people that it has. And if the master concurs with the servant's image of him, then the servant condemns himself out of his own mouth. Because the servant should have done something, anything, to make some gain, however meager. But on the other hand, what if the servant is not right about what he thinks about the master? What if the servant is operating under an illusion that the master is a petty tyrant? Doesn't the master act generously in this parable by giving the additional talents to the first servant and by inviting these two to participate in his joy? I mean, the third servant's fear, which is the opposite of love and trust, is what's controlling his life. John, in his little letter, 1 John 4, has written, There is no fear in love, but fear is cast out by love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And the third servant's perception of the master dictated his actions and led to his downfall. Now listen to me, and I know my time is way past. Love is concerned about the good of the loved one. It doesn't ask, how am I going to come out in this deal? But how am I going to serve God? My Lord. I also watched a movie this week about Martin Luther. Do you know what Martin Luther did during the plague that killed most of the people in Germany? He went to the streets and ministered to those 
who were sick. He was advised not to. No, you, you need to take these precautions. Have you seen the masks they were wearing back then? They looked like pelicans. Great big white things that were sticking out that they wore as they moved around. He didn't even wear one of those. He went around caring for those who had been diagnosed and doing the best he could in their dying days. Why? Because he loved the people he served. So once again on this second Sunday of Advent, when we focus on preparation, in what ways, to what extent, just, has, just how does your perception of God motivate your response to His offer? Are you truly prepared if the Lord decides to return today? Now I don't want to alarm you. But I want to tell you, this is actually my prayer each and every day. It's the same prayer that Paul used as he closed 1 Corinthians. The same prayer that John used as he closed Revelation. My prayer every day is, Come, Lord Jesus. I am ready for the Lord to return. I'm not afraid of death. I am ready for God to come and get us out of this mess. Now, I'm going to work hard in the time being to do everything I can to make sure other people I know are also ready. So let me conclude with a challenge. When Christ returns, don't get caught unprepared. Not having enough oil to make sure your light is shining or giving in such a way that you're not using the resources that God has provided to you, like these two parables that we've looked at last Sunday in this. Here's my challenge. It comes in the words of Paul, who wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. And I'm going to read the message. Translation done by Eugene Peterson. Now God has us all where He wants us. With all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. That verse, let me tell you this, that verse has kept me here a few times. I've shared with Cindy back here in the office times that I've thought, maybe it's time for me to move on. Maybe I'm not doing what needs to be done here to get things turned around. And this verse, God has us where He wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all His idea and all His work. All we do is trust Him enough to let Him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does. The good work He has gotten us ready to do. And then notice how Eugene Peterson translates the last line. 
work we had better be doing. Don't think for a minute that there aren't going to be people on the day of judgment who are going to be saying, oh Lord, we did this and we did that and, and we were there and we were in church and but they're going to hear the words depart from me. I don't know you. You may have known about me but you really didn't know me. Are we going to be prepared? In other words, what does our perception of God, how is that motivating us in terms of what we're doing each and every day? Let's pray. Father God, You have so much to teach us in these parables. And these two Sundays, as we have been looking forward to the second coming, help us to realize the importance of being ready, being prepared, letting our light shine, not being afraid, but moving out in love and trust to serve others. In the next two weeks, as we recall and remember and rehearse the stories of Jesus' birth, help us to be reminded of how in your love you did come back and tabernacle with us. Forgive us for not recognizing who you were, but thank you for allowing your Son to die on the cross so that we could be saved. Thank you for that name, that name Jesus, that's the sweetest thing that we could ever hear. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is the song, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. We'll sing two verses of it. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you.